Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 33, Deuteronomy chapter 24. Well, we got a little way into Deuteronomy chapter 24, the last time we met, and we're going to continue with that today. And we ended by discussing an inscrutable truth of the Bible that's not always easy to recognize. The progression of patterns from the time of creation all the way through the final words of the book of Revelation. There are patterns. This this particular truth is, I think, maybe the key that unlocks so many Bible mysteries that have escaped us. And the mysteries, of course, elicit the question, why? Because why is at the heart of what makes a mystery a mystery. Why does God do what he does in any given situation? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is it wrong to have sexual relations without the benefit of marriage? And the answer to to why is that because that it's because God's reaction and decision always follows a pre-established set-down pattern. That's why. Those patterns are defined in the Torah. That's where you're going to find them. So the question any devout believer who seriously wants to know what the Lord is up to, and their why isn't just a kind of a veiled complaint. Why? Oh, why? I'd not be asking why, but rather which. Which God pattern either reflects the outcome of a given situation or also which pattern we ought to apply to any particular issue or challenge that's facing us. Now, this progression of God patterns has generally only been of interest to Bible scholars and and precious few of those, if truth be known. And it's not something that's discussed or widely known within the Christian community because it is rare that the Old Testament's ever even taught in modern times. And without knowing the Torah of the Old Testament, the basis for these patterns is never established. I would liken this concept of of patterns to the narrow strand upon which a necklace of pearls is strung. Have you ever had the experience of seeing a pearl necklace break? And those precious round balls fall to the floor and begin, begin bouncing unpredictably in every direction? We have scores of pearls of truth presented to us in the Bible, but when the strand, which is the pattern, is missing or broken, then those pearls, which are the many biblical stories and prophecies and proverbs and and commands and laws and Yeshua's own parables, they become all disconnected. And it's nearly impossible to see their orderly sequence and organic relationship one to the other. Instead, we tend to look at those 
pearls of wisdom individually on a standalone basis, and such a thing can indeed cause us to look upward and bleed. Oh, why? Why? Now let me begin by repeating the thing I closed with last time. The God principles hidden within the story of creation were carried forward. And then they were manifested at a little more obvious level in the narratives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then those God principles that were deeply embedded in the fascinating narratives of the patriarchs were then extracted and clearly laid out in the law of Moses Mount Sinai. The detailed God, God principles given at Mount Sinai were then carried forward and brought to fruition at a higher spiritual level in the life, sermons, and parables of Yeshua, Jesus Christ. Those God principles will next be manifested at a near perfection level in the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign of Christ. But understand, they're all the same principles. Nothing has changed, only how they were revealed, manifested, and transformed over time. Well, during our lesson today, I'm going to take a couple of the laws of Deuteronomy 24, and we're going to go back several hundred years to the time of the patriarchs. I'm going to show you how those God principles that were the basis for the law of Moses played out in those much earlier Bible stories, because those same principles, of course, existed even from the time of creation. The rabbis would say, and I think the Bible backs it up, that the word, which is the law, the Torah, was in heaven long before it made its first appearance on earth at creation. First, however, let's refresh our memories by rereading Deuteronomy 24 and looking at a couple more commands. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 24. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 223. Suppose a man marries a woman and consummates the marriage, but later finds her displeasing because he has found her offensive in some respect. He writes her a divorce document, gives it to her, sends her away from his house. She leaves his house, goes, becomes another man's wife. But now the second husband dislikes her and writes her a a get, a divorce document. He gives it to her, sends her away from his house. Or the second husband whom she marries dies. In such a case, her first husband who sent her away may not take her again as his wife, because now she's defiled. It would be detestable to Adonai, and you're not to bring about sin in the land Adonai your God is giving you as your inheritance. Now, if a man recently married his wife, he's not to be subject to military service. He's to be free of external obligations and left at home for one year to make his new wife happy. No one may take a mill or even an upper millstone as collateral for a loan because that would be taking as collateral the debtor's very means of sustenance. If a man kidnaps any of his brothers, fellow members of the community of Israel, and makes him his slave or sells him, that kidnapper must die. In this way you will put an end to such wickedness among you. When there is an outbreak of sarat, 
Be careful to observe and do just what the Kohanim, who are Levites, teach you. Take care to do as I ordered them. Remember what Adonai your God did to Miriam on the road after you left Egypt. When you make any kind of loan to your neighbor, you're not to enter his house to take his collateral. You must stand outside and the borrower will bring the collateral outside to you. Now if he's poor, you're not to go to bed with what he gave as collateral in your possession. Rather, you must restore the pledged item at sunset. Then he will go to sleep wearing his garment and he will bless you. This will be an upright deed of yours before Adonai your God. You're not to exploit a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether one of your brothers or a foreigner living in your land, in your town. You're to pay him his wages the day he earns them before sunset, for he is poor. He looks forward to being paid. Otherwise, he will cry out against you to Adonai, and it'll be your sin. Fathers are not to be executed for the children nor are children to be executed for the fathers. Every person will be executed for his own sin. You're not to deprive the foreigner or the orphan of the justice which is his due. You're not to take a widow's clothing as collateral for a loan. Rather, remember, you were a slave in Egypt, and Adonai your God redeemed you from there. That is why I am ordering you to do this. When harvesting the grain in your field, if you forgot a sheaf of grain there, you're not to go back and get it. It'll remain there for the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow, so that Adonai your God will bless you in all the work you do. When you beat your olive tree, you're not to go back over the branches again. The olives that are left will be for the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. When you gather the grapes from your vineyard, you're not to return and pick grapes a second time. What is left will be for the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. Remember, you were a slave in the land of Egypt. That is why I am ordering you to do this. This is why I uh, like to read from the complete Jewish Bible, because it will use some of the original Hebrew words in place of the English translations that are frankly well off the mark often. Right? And, uh, or they obscure the meaning. Uh, we, we covered the first seven verses in the previous lesson. Alright. Uh, so we're gonna move right on to verse eight. Now most Bible versions in verse eight will say that this passage is talking about leprosy. Or perhaps it will say skin disease or something like that. The Hebrew word is sarat. And it does not mean leprosy. Sarat actually manifests itself in a variety of conditions. While usually associated with the human skin, but it's also connected with impurities upon clothing, furniture, even the walls of a building or a house. Leviticus 13 and 14 more carefully defined Sarat. And it explains that only the priesthood can deal with it. You see, because it's primarily a spiritually, a spiritual issue and only to a, a lesser degree is it a medical issue. Okay. In, in a nutshell, Sarat is seen 
as, as the outward result of an inner state of ritual defilement. Sarat is an outward illustration of how the Lord sees the inner spiritual condition of humans, diseased and corrupt. Therefore, when a Hebrew had an outbreak of Sarat on their skin, they were separated from the rest of Israel. They were forcibly put outside the camp if they balked at going out on their own volition. And outside the camp they remained until there was no further sign of Sarat. For some Israelites, that would be for the remainder of their lives. Now as an example of both what the person with Sarat can expect and why people are inflicted with this condition, verse 9 uses the incident of Miriam. I recall that some years earlier in the wilderness journey, Aaron and Miriam, Moses' own brother and sister, spoke against Moses. And Miriam was struck with Sarat as a consequence of her sin. Now there's disagreements among Jewish and Christian scholars over the precise nature of Miriam's offense. But if there is a thread of consensus, it is that this probably had to do with the crime of slanderous gossip. In Hebrew, Lashon Hara. Lashon Hara. Now essentially the problem was that Miriam had spoken against God's anointed mediator, Moses. The reason she spoke against Moses was that she had become defiled in her spirit. The result was that God had her wear this defilement on her skin outwardly for everybody to see. Whereas otherwise it was just this hidden inner condition. But it wasn't only, you see, so that others could see that she had broken peace with God. It was so she could now recognize her status in God's eyes. A sinful condition that she could have ignored and denied was now evident. It was evident to her just as it was, as it was evident to everybody else. Now this is a lesson that could be discussed over and over because it has such a direct and visible, probably daily, influence in our relationship with God. Moses was God's covenant mediator on earth for a time. Yeshua was God's greater covenant mediator on earth for a time. And he remains so in heaven. As God's mediator, Yeshua's every word and his person and his purpose should be joyfully accepted and never spoken against. As Yehovah said of Moses, and how much more this applies to Jesus, Whatever he speaks is if the Father spoke it. So much authority do their words carry. The person who speaks against Yeshua is by definition in a state of spiritual defilement. 
just as was Miriam. Because that person is disagreeing with, rebelling against God. The result is that this defiled person is taken outside the camp. They're removed from fellowship with the Lord and with fellow worshipers. The undeniable evidence of that inward defilement a defilement has become evident and outwardly observable. Since the advent of Messiah, and especially as it applies to Gentiles, we were born outside the camp, outside the kingdom of God. We were born in a state of inner defilement, with Sarat, if you would. This means that the blood of Messiah must cleanse us. It must remove this awful defilement in order for us to be brought into the camp from our natural state of living outside the camp. You see this? Now the thing to notice as well about Miriam is that being a full-blooded sister to Moses changed nothing. That she was an ethnic Hebrew changed nothing. That she is one of only five women in the entire Old Testament given the status of prophetess changed nothing. She received no special dispensation because of her family ties or her status. Jesus' brothers and sisters would not be saved just because they were related to him. They would only be saved by trusting in him as Messiah, just like everybody else. Now, a word of caution. I have heard this very example of Lashon Hara used to explain why it is that a member of a congregation can never challenge or disagree with his or her rabbi, pastor, priest, elder, deacon, teacher, whomever. While the crime of slanderous gossip is indeed generally a defiling thing, the crime of Miriam was directed against God's anointed mediator of the covenant. And that's the point. So while unity within the body of Christ for the right reasons is always desirable and a best and worthy goal, to shut down debate or deflect well-earned criticism of a congregational leader has nothing to do with the issue of Miriam and her contracting Sarat. This is not Lashon Hara. That is not slanderous gossip. You with me? Now the next law is explained in verses 10 through 13 as about taking and holding property that's being used as collateral for a loan. Now this is of course related to the earlier law in this chapter about not seizing the upper millstone from someone as loan collateral under any circumstance because this causes a person to lose their means of sustenance. And therefore to violate this law is to commit a crime against life. 
What this means is that collateral on a loan is a perfectly acceptable thing, but there are conditions and there are limitations. The first law, or the first part of this law prohibits the creditor from entering the debtor's home and forcibly taking that collateral. The rabbis explain that to enter someone's house without permission to collect collateral is tantamount to home invasion. And not only, not only is, is, is that wrong on the surface, but it could lead to a fight and then life might be endangered as a result. Rather, the creditor must stand outside and the debtor is to bring that collateral out to him. The Hebrew word being translated as collateral is abote. Abote. And more scholarly works of recent have decided to translate this word, abote, as pledge. Important difference. As opposed to collateral. Because pledge is a term that can apply to more situations, as it's intended to, than to simply being a piece of physical property that's used to secure a loan. Further, in verses 12 and 13, if the debtor is a poor person, that pledge, that abote, is to be returned to him before the sun sets. In other words, it has to be returned before the end of the day. For a poor person, the collateral that they put up is often the only thing of value they own. Their coat. This coat or or cloak, perhaps, served as a a blanket as well, which is the reason for the words that he needs to sleep in it. It's what they slept in on the colder nights. And by the way, for those of you who have been to Israel in the winter months, you've you've received a little taste of just how cold it can get even in the desert. So this law is certainly a practical and necessary one. You know, I've been snowed on in both the north and the south of Israel. A person in that environment must have warm clothing. The concept is that each morning the debtor will return the pledged coat to the creditor and then get it back at night. Now it's interesting that while most laws that are about the prohibition against doing something, in other words, the don'ts of the law, speak about a punishment for violation, this particular law about not holding on to a poor man's warm clothing gives a positive motivation to the lender to to obey it. It is that the lender will be blessed because to be merciful in this way will be seen as righteousness in the eyes of God. In the complete Jewish Bible, it says upright deed. In other Bibles, it might say merit. But what's being translated is tzedakah. Tzedakah. And it generally means righteousness or an act of righteousness, a deed of righteousness. However, this law about collateral must also be understood to mean that to take as a pledge anything, anything that is basic to sustenance and life, is that's a questionable thing to do at best. And generally speaking, you probably ought not to do that.
Now, this might be a good point, I think, to go on a little bit of a detour. To demonstrate this principle of the pledge, the abote, in action, centuries before it became a discernible and written law at the time of Moses. So to get the most out of this detour now, remember the Hebrew word abote is better rendered pledge than collateral. Okay? Because the God principle of the pledge becomes much too narrowly applied when it's attached only to the idea of lending and borrowing. It expands far beyond that. Okay. The principle of the pledge overlaps more areas of the Bible instruction than one might ever think. So turn your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 24. We're going to go back a few hundred years. We're going to go read the story of Rebecca, Rivka, being chosen as a wife for Abraham's son Isaac. Now, it's a lengthy chapter, so in the interest of time, we're, not, we're going to omit, omit parts of it. Right? Because it's not particularly needed to make the point that I'm going to demonstrate to you. Okay? So turn to Genesis chapter 24. Okay, Genesis 24... I'm going to read 1 through 14, then we're going to skip to 28, do about four verses, and then skip to 54 and go to the end. So just follow along with me. We're going to start at verse 1. By now, Avraham was old, advanced in years, and Adonai had blessed Avraham in everything. Avraham said to the servant who had put him, had served him the longest, who was in charge of all he owned, put your hand under my thigh because I want you to swear by Adonai, God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not choose a wife for my son from among the women of the Canaanites, among whom I'm living, but that you will go to my homeland, to my kinsmen, to choose a wife for my son Yitzhak, Isaac. And the servant replied, Suppose the woman isn't willing to follow me to this land. Must I then bring your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said to him, See to it that you don't bring my son back there. Adonai, the God of heaven, who took me away from my father's house and away from the land I was born in, who spoke to me and swore to me, I will give you this land to your descendants. He will send his angel ahead of you. You are to bring a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is unwilling to follow you, then you are released from your obligation under my oath. Just don't bring my son back there. The servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning the matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and all kinds of gifts, got up, went to Aram Naharaim, to Nehor city. Toward evening, when the women go out to draw water, he had the camels kneel down outside the city by the well. And he said, Adonai, God of my master Avraham, please let me succeed today. Show your grace to my master Avraham. Here I am, standing by the spring as the daughters of the townsfolk come out to draw water. I will say to one of the girls, please lower your jug so that I may drink. And if she answers, yes, drink. And I will water your camels as well. Then let her be the one 
you intend for your servant Yitzhak. This is how I will know that you have chosen, that you have shown grace to my master. Now skip down to verse 28. The girl ran off and told her mother's household what had happened. Rivka had a brother named Lavan. And when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists besides, and when he heard his sister Rivka's report on what this man had said to her, he ran out to the spring and he found the man standing there by the camels. Come on in, he said, you whom Adonai had blessed. Why are you standing outside when I've made a room in the house and prepared a place for the camels? So the man went inside, and while the camels were being unloaded and provided straw and fodder, water was brought for him to wash his feet and the men and the feet of the men with him. Now skip to verse 54. And we're going to go to the end from there. He and his men then ate and drank and stayed the night. And in the morning they got up and he said, Send me off to my master. Her brother and mother said, Oh, let the girl stay with us a few days, at least ten. After that she'll go. And he answered them, Don't delay me, since Adonai has made my trip successful, but let me get back to my master. And they said, We will call the girl and see what she says. They called Rivka and asked her, Will you go with this man? And she replied, I will. So they sent their sister Rivka away with her nurse, Avraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rivka with these words. Our sister, may you be the mother of millions. May your descendants possess the cities of those who hate them. Then Rivka and her maids mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rivka and went on his way. Now meanwhile, Isaac, one evening after coming along the road from Ber Lachai Roy, was living in the Negev, and he went walking out in the field, and as he looked up, he saw the camels approaching. And Rivka looked up too. And when she saw Isaac, she quickly dismounted the camel, and she said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And when the servant replied, It's my master. She took off her veil, she she took her veil and she covered herself. And the servant told Isaac everything he had done, and then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. He took Rivka, she became his wife, and he loved her. This was, thus was Isaac comforted for the loss of his mother. Okay, follow me closely now. And watch these parallels and connections between what happened with this story in Genesis and with this law of Deuteronomy established some five centuries later concerning the rule not to forcibly take the abote, the pledge of a man by going into his house to seize it. Now, in this story of Rebekah and Isaac, in Genesis 24, Rebekah is the pledge. She is the abote. Now remember, don't think in terms of loans and collateral. And she is to be obtained by Abraham's representative, only goes by the name of oldest servant in the house. Now, this nameless old servant of Abraham 
travels from the land of Canaan north up to Mesopotamia because he's to get a wife for Isaac. Isaac is Abraham's firstborn, is also the old servant's master. And he's to choose this wife from among Abraham's relatives. Now we see in the story that the servant arrives in Mesopotamia, he spots a good candidate at the water well, and he observes her carefully for a time. He decides that Rebecca's the one, so he makes his move. He talks to the girl. He gets invited to stay with Rebecca's family. In Genesis 24, verse 31, the question is asked by Laban, Rebecca's brother, of Abraham's servant, why are you standing outside? This corresponds to the instruction of Deuteronomy 24, 11, that the one who intends to collect a pledge must stand outside. He must not go in to the house of the pledge's owner to obtain it. Rather, the pledge must be brought outside of the home willingly and given to the master, if it's to be given at all. Now, in this story, it is the old servant who's standing outside of the house, waiting for the pledge, Rivka, to willingly be brought out to him, because it would be an offense against the household and against God for him to go in and take that pledge from her domain. And in an even deeper sense, it is Isaac, the future bridegroom, who is standing outside and waiting rather than just going in and taking. He's standing outside even of Mesopotamia where his wife-to-be is living. Because his father Abraham has ordered that Isaac cannot go out inside Mesopotamia from Canaan to retrieve his pledge, Rebekah, even though he doesn't know who precisely that pledge is. Rather, the pledge must agree to come outside of her house and her country to Canaan. Laban the master of the house where the pledge resides, offers the pledge, Rebecca, to the old servant as the representative of Isaac, and she is willingly escorted outside of her house, then outside of Mesopotamia, to where Isaac is in Canaan. Now near the end of this story, starting at verse 62, we find Isaac. He's waiting back in Canaan for the pledge... Rivka to arrive. Isaac was walking in a field. The original Hebrew most literally says it was before the going down of the sun when Isaac spotted the returning caravan led by his trusted servant and Rebekah's in tow. In the last verse, Isaac took Rebekah and made her his wife. Now as many connections as I've already shown to you, Notice something else that goes right by us if we don't understand the Hebrew mindset of the biblical era regarding marriage. In Hebrew thinking, and in their culture, a wife was as a man's garment. A man literally wears his wife 
as his covering. And when I explained this to you fairly recently in some detail, I remind you that this idiomatic symbolism that a wife was her husband's garment was so commonly understood in Hebrew society that there was certainly no need to thoroughly explain it in the Bible any more than our society would find it necessary to explain that when a couple gets married, there's a, there's a wedding ring. Okay, It's just the way things are and everybody knows it. So with that understanding now, let's go back and look again at Deuteronomy 24, verse 13. Deuteronomy 24, 13. The law concerning pledges in Deuteronomy 24 says... The clothing, a garment, given as the pledge, must be remanded to the owner before when? Before sunset. Rebecca, the pledge, is a garment to be worn by her new husband Isaac as a covering. Hence, here we find the explanation that it was before sunset that Isaac was out walking when Rebekah, the garment-to-be, so to speak, arrives. He marries her. Now he wears his pledge. He's received his garment. Isn't that beautiful? Now, I'm sure that until we studied this law of pledges in Deuteronomy 24, that it would be nearly impossible for anybody to see these particular God principles within the story of Isaac, Rebecca, and the old servant. And frankly, without understanding some critical elements of ancient Hebrew culture and marriage customs, it would be also nearly impossible to extract these, these timeless God principles from these narratives about the patriarchs. The point is that these often told and beloved stories of the patriarchs in the book of Genesis were, were more than simply interesting or exciting stories of Bible heroes or the history of how the nation of Israel came to be, although they serve that purpose too. Embedded in these stories, just as the one we just read, just under the surface are some important God principles. The people of that day probably didn't realize that so much of what they were doing as what seemed to them as just everyday custom indeed reflected the Lord step by step bringing His divine principles to light. Yet, with the later on giving of the law on Mount Sinai, suddenly those eternal God principles no longer had to be extrapolated from historic stories now their application is laid out plainly in detail. Which principle to apply to which situation is enumerated in the law of Moses? Now let me show you something else before we move on. Because it helps to answer the often debated question 
concerning God's communication to Abraham that his descendants would be led into captivity and remain there for four generations. And the usual framing of the question about this is, well, how long is a generation in the Bible? I would submit to you, it's the wrong question. The question ought to be, what is a generation? Now, by demonstrating to you that the principles behind the law were exhibited far earlier within the stories of the patriarchs, next we find that thus far in Deuteronomy chapter 24, we have laws directly connected to each of the four generations of Abraham that I just mentioned. We have the law of kidnapping, which is attributable to Joseph, one of the generations after Abraham. We have the law of Miriam's Sarat, the present generation of the time of Exodus. We have the law of the pledge for Isaac, the generation right after Abraham. And then in the same law regarding the pledge, we have the admonition of the return of the pledge. The garment to the owner shall be counted as righteousness to the one who trusts God and obeys the law. Recall in the story of the establishment of the Abrahamic covenant, the first generation. In Genesis 15.6, God tells Abraham that to trust God and obey him, that will be credited to you as righteousness. Therefore, this law of the pledge connects directly to Abraham, the original and the first generation. Now what we see is the four generations that was prophesied consisted of Abraham, number one, the generation right after him, Isaac, then Jacob, called Israel, and then the twelve tribes of Israel, his sons. It would not be until the twelve tribes, the fourth generation, were fully established, and then they were brought to some God-designated state of fruitfulness and maturity that the Lord would liberate them from captivity and then bring them to the land he had promised in the first generation to Abraham. So the four generations in the prophecy was not so much about precisely defined measurements of time as it was about the event, the exodus occurring with the fourth generation, the generation of the twelve tribes. Okay? Now this detour part of the lesson may have hurt your heads a little bit. Okay? That's okay, it's an awful lot to digest all at once. If you are able to just absorb parts of it, it should go some distance in, in, in cementing within you the organic inseparableness of the entire Word of God. And why it is such a devastating error, devastating, that the church has for 1,800 years determined to sever away the Torah and the Old Testament from our understanding and from our knowledge and from our doctrines and say that it has utterly no bearing on our faith. What a tragic error. 
This is a message that every one of you who now know better must in your own way endeavor to communicate to your brothers and sisters in the faith of Messiah Yeshua. I don't think there's much that could be of greater importance in our era than this. Let's continue with Deuteronomy 24, verse 14. Now keeping in mind that all the words of Deuteronomy amounts to Moses making an eloquent sermon about the law to the Israelites, expounding upon the law the way that Yeshua would so many centuries later. We witness an appeal to those who would be employers of the poor to pay them their wages daily at the end of each day. Now, now poor people then simply did not, and even today they usually don't, have the wherewithal to wait for their money. And Moses says, they've worked for it. They've earned it. It's wrong to withhold their earnings until a later time, presumably one that's maybe more convenient for their employer. The word used for withholding these wages is abuse. Pretty strong. It's the exact same word used in Leviticus 19 for the law characterizing the crime of robbery. And the employer is warned that while the abused employee, he may not have the power to force the employer to do what's right and pay him that day, but he can cry out to the Lord. And the Lord will consider it sin. He will extract divine justice for this sin. He will balance the scales of justice. Now from this law on wages, the sermon moves on to banning transgenerational punishment. That is, the parents may not be put to death for something their children did. Thank you. (laughs) And vice versa. Notice that no particular crime is mentioned. This is a universal law that cuts across all the laws. Okay. There is a substantial difference between this law and a principle that I introduced to you, it's been a long time ago now, a principle called vertical retribution. Now, vertical retribution, in fact, can put the punishment for trespassing against the Lord upon descendants several generations removed from when the trespass happened. This is something that might sound kind of strange to us, but it was real, and it was practiced by the Hebrews. Now we, we occasionally talk about generational curses right, that are the result not of what the affected person might have done, but something that that person's father or grandfather or maybe even an earlier ancestor might have done. And there are those who pray fervently on the behalf of others that these generational curses might be lifted. Many verses in the Old Testament and the New confirm the existence of the spiritual law of vertical retribution. The difference between the law against 
transgenerational punishment and vertical retribution is that vertical retribution is not part of the civil or the criminal law code. Vertical retribution is decided upon and carried out exclusively by God. It is His prerogative to decide in what situations to invoke the principle of vertical retribution or not to invoke it. The law banning transgenerational punishment, on the other hand, has to do with humans carrying out the justice system that the Lord's established. If, for example, a son committed a murder, the father doesn't owe his own life, and so a court may not order a father to be executed. Only the perpetrator is liable for his own capital offense. Well, the final laws of Deuteronomy 24 again again deal with humanitarianism. And and, and these rules that in the chapter deal with protecting foreigners living in Israel and orphans and widows and especially the concept of it being a duty of every Israelite to look after the welfare of orphans and widows is a theme that we find repeated throughout the entire Bible. It's important to understand that not only is there a divinely commanded duty to care for the disadvantaged class of people, but there is also a prohibition against exploiting them, against mistreating them. Verse 17 begins by saying that the rights of a stranger, a gear, are not to be subverted. This is talking about legal matters, a foreign Foreigner and an orphan are to be judged fairly in a court of law. The next admonition is very much like the law of back in verse 10, the law of the pledge that we connected to that ancient story of Isaac and and Rebekah. The difference between what we read here in verse 10 is that while a creditor may use a poor person's garment as collateral and must return it each night to that debtor, A widow's garment can never be used as collateral, can never be held away from her at any time for any reason. It's interesting that we find even more concern for the widow than for the orphan and for the foreigner in this particular issue. Jewish tradition has taken this even a step further and declared that no possessions of a widow may be used as collateral on a loan. Moses then reminds Israel that they were slaves in Egypt, and it is for remembrance of the mercy that was withheld from them that they should always show mercy to the least able in society as a way of expressing gratitude for God's act of redemption from such harsh conditions. This, of course, exactly plays into Jesus' reasoning that by believers aiding those who are the least in society, it's as if we're aiding him. It is a case of our showing our gratitude 
for our redemption by showing mercy to those who Yeshua once looked after and helped. Verse 19 expounds upon the laws given in Leviticus concerning leaving a portion of the fields and vineyards and tree crops for the foreigner and the widow and the orphan. The earlier and similar law in Leviticus said that the corners of the fields were to be left for the poor. These rules in Deuteronomy further define what's to be left so that the disadvantaged can have food. The rabbis have concluded that the various laws about gleaning can be categorized into four groups based on what's to be left for the poor. And it's these. The edges of the fields, vineyards, and groves are to be left unharvested. Second is, that which is forgotten in the fields, vineyards, and groves is not to be reclaimed by the owner. Third is that those grains and grapes that fall to the ground during the reaping process are to be left there by the owner, where they fall, and he's not to gather them. And fourth, is that the smaller and immature and therefore less desirable clusters of grapes are to be left on the vines and not later later harvested by the owners. Moses says there's a reward for obedience to these laws for the farmer and the field owner. The Lord will bless all of his undertakings if he will obey this. The reason is that the farmer is being urged to give up what is legitimately his for the sake of mercy towards another person. This admonition, of course, seems to parallel the exhortation that we get in the New Testament that we always give our tithes and offerings in the name of the Lord as we should, that the result of following this God principle is that the Lord will then bless our lives and our efforts. But remember, here in Deuteronomy, this is not a case of tithes and offerings. This is not a case of people giving to the temple or to the Lord. This is a case of people directly helping the poor. Our giving to the Lord for the work of the church is separate from helping the less fortunate among us. Both are expected of God's people without hesitation. We'll begin chapter 25 next week. That'll do it for tonight.